nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel Who Gets Believed? Wait, no, no, that's not right. Nope. Yes, it is. That's my book. No, you wrote the good lieutenant. You wrote the good lieutenant. You read some of the... You... I sent you an early draft of this. You've you wrote the good lieutenant. Stop fucking with me. You've been saying the same line for so long. And I've read the good <coughs> lieutenant and you are the author of the good lieutenant and not who That's gets true. believed. That is true. Um, however, it is not as easy to figure out when people are lying or when they're telling the truth. And, and in fact, our systems for figuring out what is true and what is not true might be compromised, especially for immigrants who are attempting to establish their identities in new places and find it hard to get believed by the systems in those places, even when they are telling the truth. And that's where today's guest, Dina Nairi, the real author of Who Gets Believed, Whitney, (laughs) and Who Gets Believed is a new nonfiction book, which begins as Dina combines personal narrative with research and interviews to explore the book's title question, which is Who Gets Believed, of course, and why? Dina Nairi was born in Iran and granted asylum in the United States at the age of 10. She is the author of two novels, and her previous book of nonfiction, The Ungrateful Refugee, uh, won the Heschwister Scholl Prize, which I practiced on, and was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, the Kirkus Prize, and the El Grand Prix uh, de Lectrices, and called by The Guardian a work of astonishing, insistent importance a 2019-2020 fellow at the Columbia Institute for Ideas and Imagination in Paris, and a winner of the 2018 UNESCO City of Literature Paul Engel Prize, Dina has won an NEA Literature Grant and an O. Henry Prize, among other honors. Her work has appeared in Best American Short Stories, and her upcoming publications include The Waiting Place, a nonfiction children's book about refugee camps, and Sitting Bird, a novel. Dina, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. It's great to have you. Um, So the topic of your book seems timeless, but it's also, I think, really urgent with asylum seekers and refugees surging in number all over the world. So Who Gets Believed opens with a short meditation on believability and evidence, specifically scar imagery. And then that section concludes with the lines, I am an unbeliever, but I see that now. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it means to be an unbeliever and how not only your own experience as an asylum seeker, but also your own skepticism shaped your approach to writing the book. Sure. Um, Well, I think this is something that I, I guess one of the biggest things I learned about myself, not just over the course of writing the book, but over the last few years, you know, is that there is something about, you know, the quality of my experiences over the last couple of decades that have made me a skeptic because of the fact that I've been in so many situations where I've had to perform for a different audience, starting from when I was a child, asylum seeker. Um, And I think like coming to terms with this cynicism has been a very long process that has had me maybe questioning, you know, things like, my 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 faith, my spirituality, you know, what I my relationships with other people, um, my relationship with myself. Um, but you know, I think the the obsession with ideas around being believed and belief and all of that stuff started um, when I was a kid, and um, you know, we were like you said in Iran, and then we had to escape the country. And over the course of the two years that we were on our way to to our new life in America, when we were refugees. Um, and asylum seekers, um, you know, I, I saw us degrading in the eyes of the outside world. I saw that, you know, we had been 
people who were respected and trusted and we weren't anymore. And, and I became obsessed with how to be that again or how to, as an adult, be American enough or the right kind of American enough. I was constantly aware of just all of the different doors and the gatekeepers beside them and I became obsessed with that. And, and we started with things like universities and, um, you know, where will I go? What ch- which class of American will I be? You know, where, what, you know, I guess, rooms will I be allowed into? And then throughout my life, it, um, you know, I guess it kind of cemented for me that each of these places has, has, you know, their performance and, and, and you have to learn and adapt and become, I guess, a bit of a chameleon. And I think I didn't see myself becoming, I don't know, I don't know the right word, like, is it cynic really? But, um, Definitely very cynical, definitely very questioning, always wondering if a person is telling me the truth, always wondering if, um, you know, what I'm getting is a performance that other people think that I want, and, and, and until very recently. And I think with this book, um, what was difficult about it was that, you know, I was examining so many stories of people who were tragically disbelieved. And, you know, I was kind of digging in, in this detached sort of, you know, journalistic way and thinking about the ideas behind it, you know, kind of meditating on them, etc. And then the whole tragedy kind of came to our door in that, you know, we had this huge family tragedy in the middle of the the pandemic, um, which which I guess I talk about in the book, which is a person who I didn't believe at all. It just um who, you know, took his own life and and he um I should have believed him. I was absolutely wrong and then I for a long time lost trust in myself and my judgment and then you know for a long time I kind of go back and and just grieve my own arrogance um and you know who I had been um and I think a lot of that reflection worked its way into the book I felt that maybe I couldn't be honest without it um but yeah I think it's a very long-winded way to answer that question, but that's why I wrote that first page, um, because we don't always believe the evidence that's right before our eyes. And you mentioned scars. People's scars are often disbelieved, and many of our scars are not even visible. So, um, you know, I wanted to write about my biases right from the front. Well, one of the things that you're, I feel like you're talking about in the book, that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong in my reading, is that Yes. Okay. Yes. Someone who's an outsider, like a refugee or, or an immigrant, is going to know the system better than the people who are inside. That's always like because they have to learn it to negotiate it. Right. It's more explicit to them. They have to pay attention to it. Uh, I I talk about this when I write about women who are working in the military. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So but you're also talking about like the way that truth is manufactured or expressed or the things that we take to be markers as truth are not necessarily worth believing in and that western ways of producing truth right deserve to be questioned you know i mean it seems to me like that's sort of at the core of what you're talking about here and looking at the system by which we go through to establish yeah. truth one of those really interesting yeah. exam because you 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 have i mean yes there are refugees and immigrants in the book but there are also like these these two men who were accused of burning down their house with their families in it, right? And why, and what caused them not to be believed? Um, and mm-hmm. one of the things that you talk about is the read technique, which I have seen on television, as you point out, right? But yeah. is one of our ways yeah. of establishing truth, but it is a very dangerous way of establishing truth. I wonder if you could talk about that. 
Sure. I mean, I, before I go into that, I just want to say, like, one of the things that shocked me about those two men who were accused of burning down, you know, their own houses was just the fact that the whole thing hinged on how they performed their grief. Yeah. It was all about like, well, you're not, you're not shocked enough. You're not stunned enough or you're too mellow. You're not mellow enough. I mean, they, in fact, the two of them each had went a different way. One of them was too calm and one of them was too, you know, um, agitated and shocked and upsetting, you know, to the, to the officers. And, and it just felt like absurd, you know? Um, but the read technique is, you know, I learned about it for this book and I realized right off the bat, I had seen it on television a lot too, but I mean, it was, it's, it's kind of, I guess what we um, casually call the third degree, mm -hmm. um, which is this technique that officers use to get information from their suspect. And the idea is, you know, they go in having decided that this person did it and their goal, the original purpose of this technique is to extract physical information, like evidence that will help them prove that this person did it. But the evidence is supposed to be things that is just undeniable. So there's, they go in, they perform this technique, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and then their goal is to get the location of a body, a weapon, some kind of evidence that can definitely show that they were right, you know, and if they find that, if the person gives them that, of course, it does prove that they were right, right? Um, so, so what they go, do is go in and say, um, you know, there's no question about your guilt, you're definitely going, you know, down for this, you're definitely going to, to prison for a long time. Um, we believe you did it for, you know, and they say the worst possible reason, the worst possible outcome, the worst possible punishment. But then, you know, they come in after the person has, is frightened and despairing and think, oh my God, you know, they, there's no way to get out of this. And they come in and say, well, you know what though, I want to help you. You know, I, 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 I don't want you to go down for this. I know that you're a good guy inside. I know it was just that one time or, or, you know, you made a mistake. You were trying to do good. If you just help me out, you know, to make this particular reason stick, which is a reason that's more understandable, things can go easier for you. Plus right. they can now, lie, the trouble right? I mean, that's the thing. This, this method of establishing yeah. truth, which is a confession is our gold standard of truth. But yeah. this method creates yeah. false confessions as your book shows. And, and the people who are employing it don't have to tell the truth. They don't have to tell the truth, but here's the thing. Then the false confession, which you often, you know, there's people who are put through this, like the example in my book where, um, you know, they're on the spectrum, on the autism spectrum. Right. They believe every single thing that they're being told. They're frightened. They don't know um, how to respond to these extremely well-trained people. And, um, and so there's a lot of false confession. But here's the thing. They don't then use those confessions to go and find real evidence to test themselves. There's no gut check anymore. They use that confession as the evidence, which you see the logical flaw there, right? Because obviously, you know, the confession itself was never the purpose in when, when this um, technique was devised. But now it's used in courts as, as the evidence that they got. It's interesting because journalists learn pretty early on that, right, you don't publish, I don't know, based on a single source. Yeah. Um, and yet that's effectively what the legal system is doing all the time. Um, going back a little bit to what you were saying about kind of your own skepticism, mm -hmm. I wonder how, right, someone who participates in this system who is constantly being read by this, um, I don't, to turn your own skepticism on others um, seems both like an inevitable effect of this kind of like brutal education and also like some sort of way of reclaiming your own power to say like, mm -hmm. I also get to read other people. But then, yes, of course, like if you are learning to read people that way, it can lead you yeah. to read them ungenerously or incorrectly. 
Well, yeah, and it kind of is, it's this self-propagating thing because you believe success to be confessions. And if you're someone who continually gets these confessions, you're continually convinced of your own success. And not only are you convinced of your own success, you're convinced of your own um, instinct because that first hunch keeps being correct because these people keep confessing. And, and a lot of times, I guess people don't think maybe I'm coercing them into confessing. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the work, <laughs> a, a lot of the work of the Innocence Project is kind of going back and, um, and, and finding the root of these false confessions, you know, what caused them to, um, you know, to just lie about whether or not they did it or even to have false memories, um, you know, kind of the feeling that maybe they did do it because these we're talking about hours and hours of interrogation by people who, again, are very much convinced of their infallibility and also incentivized based on the, the convictions and the, the confessions and all of that stuff. So it just... It, it it invites the officers to become the worst version of themselves and completely forget, you know, to question themselves, I guess, uh, some, some humility, the kind of humility that makes people good at their jobs, actually, you know. So early on in the book, you spend some time writing about glossolalia, which I will admit that I totally had to just go and look up. I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, that's what that means. And, um, and as someone who I feel like yeah, I'm interested in writing about coercion because there's this sort of liminal space where you're right, you're not sure if you've decided or not, right? Not yeah. only are you the subject, but maybe you're also the agent. Um, and maybe you have decided something and you almost can't tell anymore. And so you write about glossolalia kind of in that context. And your your mom is able to speak in tongues and she gives you evidence, which is this recording. Um, and yeah. then it's sort of like, well, did she decide to talk or did God decide to talk? Who, how can I tell? There's no evidence I could possibly get that would answer that question. Yeah. And I don't know. It, it just, I was thinking about, um, you know, all of your, all of your examples and these people who in the process of performing stories that are maybe not exactly squaring with their memories, eventually make memories that, kind of retroactively square. So where does yeah. that truth begin? And, and so how does that notion of agency um, sit with your understanding of how legal systems work and attempt to decipher um, people's actual choices? Yeah, I mean, this is the problem with like memory. And, you know, I was reading a lot of Simone Weil during the writing of this book, and, and she wrote about how, you know, the um, the psyche or the spirit, I guess, is constantly excreting this self-protective armor, you know, and, 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 you know, remaking all of the most painful and brutal things that we can't stand about ourselves. It's to, you know, in a way that is palatable, that is, um, you know, that we can, we can actually handle that will make us able to live with ourselves. And, and it, it's true in so many ways. I mean, it's true in terms of, you know, the kind of memory you were talking about where, you know, we, we remake it so, you know, we don't have to, so it can square, I guess, with what we believe in ourselves, about ourselves, et cetera. But then there's also the way trauma memories are remade. And, and considering how many of the kinds of stories that become important in these um, in these various moments where you're facing the world systems, like the bureaucracies where asylum or housing or, or you know, like um, child services or medical services or any of these moments, you're always kind of telling a story that is going to have left a brutal footprint. It's not, those are not your easy stories that you're telling and they will not have implanted in your memory in the way every other 
story does. Mm -hmm. And so they are by nature flawed. I mean, after writing this book, first of all, I will never again trust one of my memories. I will never again trust anybody else's memories because memories are are by nature the lies that we tell ourselves. And yes, they... um, they're rooted in in a, in a particular truth, and I think we can become self aware and 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 you know, see see them a little bit more objectively than we than we might have otherwise. But it we can't trust them completely, and and yet the thing like for example when you take the asylum example, um, sometimes the entire decision is based on one person's memory and another person's judgment, and both are so very flawed. I mean, one is completely destroyed by trauma and shame and fear. That would be the person's memory. And the other person, um, you know, the way they're taking in that story is, you know, affected by their bias, by the stories they're used to hearing, by whether or not they're desensitized and whether or not they maybe even that day want to be merciful. So like, let's talk about, let's take that. That's a very good entree into this character, KV, who's a Tamil immigrant from Sri Lanka who, who appeals to the UK for asylum in the UK. And they have the same situation where he has these incredibly traumatic memories that you dramatize mm-hmm. in the book. And then you've got a system that is doesn't want to admit him, right? Doesn't, doesn't want him to be traumatized in the way that he's saying. So could you talk about how that ends up, you know, changing, distorting, moving us away from truth rather than toward truth? Yeah. Um, I mean, the KV story, gosh, I sometimes I think about it now after being mired in it for so long and think, I still don't understand how this happened. Um, because it was just such a, I mean, I don't understand how it happened, not just to KV, but to so many people. But basically, as background, KV came from Sri Lanka in 2011, and he had been tor- tortured in detention in a way that is very, very typical of how um, the government was torturing suspected Tamil tigers or people who helped Tamil tigers. And, you know, his father was a jeweler and I guess they had melted um, some jewelry. Um, and so um, he was arrested and put in, in detention and tortured with hot soldering irons to the back, which, you know, you know, that's how they do it. Um, so he showed up with these very typical scars all over his back. He came into the UK and he uh, presented his case immediately. He He presented himself for asylum. He had, you know, medical experts and and country experts, et cetera, confirmed that this is very, very likely what has happened to him. It happened a lot. Um, he has, you know, plenty of evidence showing that it happened. But then the per- the particular officer that heard his story, I suppose she was dis- he or she was desensitized and had heard this story so many times before because many were coming through with the same story, similar language, exact same scars, for a good reason, for a good you know, honest reason they had the same scars and the same story. Um, often they'd come through the same detention camp. And um, this person decided not to believe. Now, I guess around this time, there was a particular category that was created, which KV fell into, which was this notion of self-infliction by proxy, which is that they said, the Home Office said, well, we don't believe that he got these scars in torture, um, through torture. Um, we believe that he perhaps inflicted the stars the scars on himself so self-infliction by proxy which means we also understand that he couldn't have put scars on his own back so it's possible that he hired a doctor like a medical professional to professionally put the scars on his back so that he could get uk asylum it is such an absurd you know possibility and the worst part is that it is a category 
to which there is no um, burden of proof attached. So they could decide that they don't believe all of these other categories of possibility, which do have burdens of proof attached. They might could say not enough proof there, there, there. So I'm just going to push into you know, KV and others into this bucket and say that they might have done it themselves. No burden of proof. Um, and so a lot of people were dismissed for this reason. And KV's case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And it took the UK Supreme Court to say, this is absurd. Like, you can't do this. This is illogical. You know, if you're going to, um, you can't dismiss one reason, which we know is well documented and happens all the time because there's not overwhelming evidence, while saying that you believe this possibility that is completely fantastical <laughs> and attach no burden to that. Well, some yeah. people would call that Kafka-esque. In fact, you do in <laughs> yes, your book. They would. And so I wonder if you could also, since we're a literature and politics podcast, talk about the, the way the penal colony is, is woven into the book here and that story by Kafka, in case yeah. people aren't familiar with it. Yeah, Penal Colony and the trial and so many other things. Every time I read some Kafka while I was researching this book, I'm like, yes, this is. And um, and also the 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 fact that KV was called, you know, his name was shortened to K, um, which, you know, is the protagonist in the trial. It was kind of strange for me. Um, but, you know, the Penal Colony was actually a story that I read years and years ago when I was very young. And um something about it stuck in my head this this kind of not just the torture but the idea that at some point you would succumb to the torture or something so um you know i guess grotesque and brutal and so very kind of meta in terms of constantly pushing onto you this thing that you had done you know because in the penal colony that the harrow carves into your back your crime you know or your sentence i guess technically the sentence um and until um, you die and then at some point until you die, but before you die, you, you succumb, you know, like you um, give in. And I think it's very analogous to the way that, um, what psychologically these systems do to people who come um, to, to kind of these survivors. You, it's this constant runaround, constant accusation again and again and again, a repetition, a painful repetition, a painful reliving of things that they've been through. And um, until finally at some point they succumb and they go back and sometimes they go back into danger. Um, sometimes they just give up, but you know, the, I guess the image of the harrow on the back for me was also evocative because of all of the scars, um, because of all the scars on KV's back, which, you know, the pictures that I looked at all the time, him and other um, uh, other Sri Lankan asylum seekers. It, it, it just all felt like a very is a poignant and brutal and, and, and difficult connection. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back.
for our listeners who might not um, remember the hero, um, the hero is this, and correct me if I'm wrong here, right? It's this gruesome torture device, and it involves sort of two sets of needles, one which inscribes a literal sentence on the yeah. back of the of the person being subjected to the hero. And so you can't read the sentence. It is illegible, but it is being inscribed into you. And then there's another set of needles which sort of rinse away the blood. Yes. So that as and then you get turned around and then you and then it gets re-inscribed and re-rinsed and re-inscribed and re-rinsed until eventually it becomes legible to you, but sort of through physical pain. Exactly. Um and so I mean, particularly in the case of KV, where this ludicrous um right uh, presumption of self-infliction is mm-hmm. attached to him. Like the the metaphor of the harrow seems particularly apt. And um, I mean, this is a like the the notion of self-infliction is like right. It's it's um it's sort of a thing that is like attached to the community. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, KV specifically, but right, this is a thing that other people have also been accused of. Um, it's yeah. a thing that that Sri Lankan government officials have sometimes alleged. Um, and so it's it's like a and yeah, and it doesn't, as you say, it doesn't have this burden of proof. Um, and it is also an extraordinarily like complex and ludicrous explanation. Well, you can see yeah. this all um, the time. I mean, I, I think when yeah. I was reading it, I thought about like when you watch people on Fox News claim that the protesters in the Capitol, I mean, not the protesters, the insurrectionists in the Capitol <laughs> were actually Antifa or were, you know, like they're, yeah. they're always this this creation of of falsity, right? due to a motivated reasoning, basically. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just, it's just kind of gets right at people's, you know, worst fears or, you know, the, and I think now when people make up stuff like that, and even when um, an official office creates like a rationale like that, it almost feels as though um, there's no fear at all of being called out, even by the Supreme Court of being said, you know, like, oh, well, this is absurd, or you are absurd, you're being silly or stupid, as long as just a few people believe. It's like, it's like now, just the snatching of a, of a few imaginations, you know, into believing this is a possibility, feels like a win for them, which makes them so much the more brazen um, in this kind of, um, this kind of, I guess scaremongering storytelling. I mean, I, I I can't imagine. You should have should have read some of the letters and some of the responses by human rights organizations and by doctors and psychologists and charities and torture um, experts who said there is nothing in the human psyche that would cause you to do this to yourself. I mean, the the pain of that it would um, inflict to get scars like this is. I mean, that's the reason, that's the only reason you would want to go to the UK. Why would you do this yourself if it's not already happening to you? And if, even if so, even if you like say are willing to do that to yourself in order to get into the UK, then what more horrible thing are you possibly escaping? I mean, nobody stops to think about the psychology of this. Why would anyone do this? Unless there's something much worse, but you know, just to make sure that this point is clear, none of the experts believe that anyone would ever do this. Not for UK asylum. There's a moment in the book where you you make a you make a note about um, someone 
escaping because or leaving the country because they can't pay a certain ransom. And you make a note there that, right, when you were seeking Mm -hmm. asylum, that you were seeking refuge from persecution on the basis of certain aspects of identity, none of which are class, none of which are class. And so Mm -hmm. um, and so in order to know not to give that answer, you would have to be aware kind of before you ever showed up for your question, what kind of performance you're supposed to give. And actually, like ransom is a thing that is often that it's often a reason. a reason that people are leaving um and, from and a variety how of places is. exactly if like some if some you know absolute villain like somebody who is you know has committed murders and 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 all done all kinds of bad things says to you i know you have this money you're going to give it to me or you die and he's killed lots of other people before i mean and you truly don't have this money like that's your life I mean, of course you're going to run, but that's not a good enough reason for asylum. And I think one of the one of the things I was going to say earlier, um, um, when you said, um, you know, if you are someone on the outside, you know, like an asylum seeker or someone, you you kind of have to know the rules and the performances even better than an insider, right? Um, but the fact is that they don't, you know. And 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 one of the problems is exactly this: like, if you are an asylum seeker with some resources, one of the first things that you do is get yourself representation and you learn the definition of a refugee so that you can say the right part of your story. Whereas if you don't, you come in and you just spill out the whole truth. Now, um, that definition of refugee is that you have to have, um, this is from the Refugee Convention in 1951 and then 1967. So the, the idea is that you you have to have a credible fear for your life of, of persecution based on one of five things. Um, um, so race, religion, national nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. So just those five, right? And then it so so obviously money is not one of those things. Ransom is not one of those things. Um, but if you come in and give kind of a mixed story, if you say something along the lines of, well, you know, I was a Christian in this Muslim country, um, and I um, and at the same time, you know, I didn't have enough money to pay so and so, and this, you know, it, a, a story that's actually very very realistic because it has all kinds of different aspects to it. Perhaps it has, you know, blackmail in there and there's like, you know, a messy situation with a moral police officer like any runner or and and religion and all this other stuff only one aspect of the story actually fits the definition. But if you say all of it, they're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt and pick the one that that fits. They're going to say, oh, I heard money. Okay, so you're here because you're an economic migrant and, and you're out. Because the incentive of the person listening to the story is to find any reason to turn you away. So it's only the people who have the resources um, for, for representation that really have their story tailored. They say only the right thing. They don't say too much. They don't say the extra parts of the story. They give the simplest possible answer. I was persecuted for my religion. That, by the way, not to get long-winded, which I'm about to get long-winded, um, the, the original, you know, um, reason that, you know, the writers of the Refugee Convention wrote those five categories was, and, you know, this is not my interpretation, a lot of other, you know, experts have interpreted it this way, legal experts who say, you know, they created those five categories and particularly that last category membership in a social group to be as vague as possible because the Holocaust had just happened and they didn't know what the next thing would be. And they wanted to cover themselves. They wanted to make sure that it includes anything that could be, you know, any group of people. But now that last category is used to exclude people by, you know, lawyers who say, well, 
is are women a social group? Are battered women a social group? Are single mothers a social group? And so on and so forth. And and that wasn't the intention. The intention was to say, you know, anybody, anybody who is in danger. So we're talking so much about performance, how these stories are told. And throughout the book, you recount story after story about immigrants, specifically to the UK, and their struggle to make their own performances of their trauma believable. And I wonder if you could read a passage to us about that. Okay. In, Pri in Primo Levi's The Drowned and the Saved, an SS officer says to a prisoner, even if some of you survive, the world would not believe him. And even if some proof should remain and some of you survive, people will say that the, ev that the events you describe are too monstrous to be believed. They will say they are the exaggerations of allied propaganda and will believe us who will deny everything and not you. We will be the ones to dictate the history of the loggers. The officer's words reach deep down to the survivor's worst nightmares, that their trauma will run afoul of someone's sacred myth, their essential truths and, and lazy workarounds. Levy writes of a recurring dream that almost all survivors share from their nights in captivity. They had returned home and with passion and relief were describing their past sufferings, addressing them to a loved person, and were not believed, indeed were not even listened to, in the most typical and most cruel form, the interlocutor turned and left in silence. The known world is too precious. We devote ourselves to protecting it. We try most urgently to bind our myths by some tendril to reality, a fraught scramble back to the steady state. After a lifetime of faith in God, country, and human goodness, if thousands of emaciated prisoners stumble out of ghettos claiming to have suffered monstrous atrocities, believing them requires a Herculean override of instinct. The mind is trying to explain away the plainly visible. And so the survivor is constantly terrified that the marks on her body won't be enough and her story will be deleted from history that even as the listener takes in each awful detail, he's racing to calculate the likelihood of embellishment. And, will, and when believing is too hard or threatens his vital assumptions, his subconscious will do the dismissing for him. Levy's description of the recurring nightmare reminds me of Elif, a Turkish rape survivor who after nine years of torture in prison fled to the UK. I was like th someone thrown out of the world, she said but she wasn't talking about leaving home. She was describing the memory of her asylum interview when two men forced her to relive every beat of her rapes. How did the police rape me? How many men raped me? Could I give them any evidence proving this? Could I give them any evidence about the torture? It was as if my body was, shredding, was shedding its skin. I wanted to say, stop it, I can't go on. I can't, I can't. Why couldn't they have been women? I felt dead explaining about my rape to those men. Elif gripped her papers, proof of her long years in prison. Realizing it wasn't enough, she lost her words. Oh God, they want proof of the actual rapes. She ran to the toilet and washed her face. I didn't yet know that they were robots. I wanted to die. And then the interview was finished. Thank you. Um, that's a very powerful um, passage. Um, and it implies the idea of humanity's innate desire to protect that sacred truth or social norm. Like I was talking about, like, 
it's very important for Republicans to believe that they believe in America, but but obviously acted contrary to America's interests in on January 6th, right? You also talk about the idea of uh, and desirability of the identity of an expert, right, in the book, and how as a child you saw that identity as a way to get past gatekeepers. Um, what kind of expert do you consider yourself now that you've finished the book, and how does that square with how you're perceived today? Is it simpler and perhaps more believable for people to treat you primarily as an activist and a refugee rather than as a writer? Yeah, I think so. Well, I think, you know, expertise, earlier I talked about an obsession, I guess, with being believed and with being kind of person. But as you said, expertise was the thing that my family had taught me is the way to get there. In Iran, the difference between Iran and America was simply that in Iran, my parents were doctors. And I think at the beginning, it was very easy to just make that the reason and say, you know, I'm going to go and get an education, be believed because I know these particular things. But now, I guess more and more, I'm realizing, I guess, as I grapple with my own fallibility um, and with the fact that I've chosen something really very hard to, to, to devote myself to, I realize I'm never actually going to be comfortable with labeling myself that, you know, the, that expert, the, the expertise I'm pursuing, I guess, is, um, you know, in, in, in writing and storytelling and words and, 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 and sentences and kind of beauty on the page. But, um, I do think that, um, you know, in our, in our eagerness to attach labels to people, um, you know, we kind of very, very quick about it. I think the thing that has been attached to me is like refugee activist, which is not how I see myself. Um, it's it's actually kind of coincidental that for the last two books, my only two nonfiction books, I have focused so much on refugees. Well, not coincidental. I was a refugee. I relate to this. It's a story that I am constantly, you know, gravitating toward. But but it is still two books out of a lifetime. And and, and I, I'm much, much more interested, I guess, in these questions of what it is to be human, what it is to be a good person, what it is to be us now, you know, and 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 how we relate to each other and, and these stories. I mean, I want to tell good stories. And and also I'm interested in how stories develop across cultures, you know, how we tell stories differently you know, if, say in Iran, where I come from, and in America, and, and here in the UK, and all, all over the world, and, um, you know, how we receive those stories. Um, but I think it does, I guess, I, I'm a writer, you know, like you guys, we have all our insecurities. And I think one of my big insecurities is this being kind of labeled an expert on the wrong thing, or, or, or having the wrong expertise attributed to my work, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's not refugee activism. I mean, I, I'm a writer, right? So I, 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 once in a while, I suppose, crave, um, you know, having that be the focus of things. But I feel like this is, yeah, I often get posed questions and sort of the way that you're describing, which we were emailing about before. And I'm always like, ethnicity is not an actual aesthetic. Um, you could ask no. me a question about my aesthetic that, that connects to that, but anyway. Um, well, you know, and, and you know, this, this happens often, you know, some I've had before, you know, like you've written a book and you've, you've, you know, poured so much education into it, like actual Western education. And then it gets assigned to be reviewed by another Iranian whose only connection to you is Iranianness. And you're like, okay. Well, right. I mean, even before in your earlier answer, I rem I was noting that you said, um, and this isn't just my opinion, but the opinion of actual legal experts. And I was like, Dina, you are an expert, yeah. but, but an, ex <laughs> an expert in what? Anyway, we encourage yeah. our listeners for Dina's expertise, you should go and pick up a copy of Who Gets Believed, which is a terrific book, which is out right now. Dina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for inviting me. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. 
This podcast is produced by me, Thomas White. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Also, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We also post that show page with links to the books we reference every week on Facebook at FNF Pod and on Twitter at FNF Talk and on Instagram at fiction.non.fictionpodcast. You can find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction YouTube channel and IGTV channel and our podcast website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic area. Happy reading.